So today, here's our passage, and here's how we got to the passage. We've been in Romans, uh, we're in Romans chapter 6, been moving through that for a number of months. Um, the hardest book I've ever taught through by far, it's wrecked my study habits. Um, it's really good, it's amazing, it's just got, it's just such deep roots, and you kind of got to hose off the roots, you know, like to kind of track them going down in the soil, but there's so much help and power down in the details of it, so because we are a gospel emphatic church and we're always talking about the gospel and everything connects to the gospel and what the gospel is, there can be a tendency sometimes to say gospel, 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 and just have schmarmy, light, bullet-pointed views of what the gospel is and who God is and who we are in that, right? And we need to be careful to not do that, to have a shallow concept of the gospel. We're always answering through very light, though truth statements about God and grace and truth and forgiveness. We need to get and push down into the details. There's power in the details of it. And the text of Romans has all those kind of details. So there's great value in it. And it's okay. It's okay to go to Jesus and come to him as a spiritual child. Because that's how we all come to him, as a spiritual baby. And we are born again, and then we grow. If you're not expecting to grow and hanging out with Jesus, you're just not expecting the right thing. Right? Jesus comes and says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the light, I have the words of life. Out of your belly will flow fountains of living water. I am the bread of life. So we, the idea from the beginning is that we keep coming back to him. The idea isn't that we have a wedding with Jesus. The idea is that we have a marriage with Jesus. That we start this ongoing relationship and you keep spending time with him. It's just, and he starts just opening your eyes more and more to all these amazing things. And some things you get like right out of the, right out of the, ba- out of the box. But some things... You won't get for decades, scores of years of reading the same verses. And then all of a sudden you're like, what in the world? How did I miss that for all these years, right? Or what's even more fun is when you're like 60 years old and you've taught it three times. And then you hear someone sharing it who's 17 years old. And you're like, really? I didn't really get that. I didn't think about that. Or maybe I I forgot that 40 years ago. It's a sweet thing. Jesus is always unfolding the truth before us. And so uh, today's passage comes from this history. We were going to be in Romans chapter 6 today because Andrew Dempsey was going to preach that. But the guy decided to get sick on Friday. So, um, so as I was praying through and thinking through where we'd go, because there's no time to study that passage in two days. Um, as I was thinking and praying through where to go, I, I was reflecting on a number of conversations and themes that I've, of conversations I've had amongst our church body over the last few weeks. And one of those themes has been forgiveness. And um, in order just to keep things rather simple, I thought I'd take you guys to one of the most impactful passages for me when it comes to the topic of forgiveness, where the Lord really, I think, kind of kicked the doors open in a great way and went, oh, man, like the glorious light pours into my soul. It's this one, the unforgiving servant. Um, When you read it the first time, I think for most of us, when we read it the first time, you just pick up a lot of stuff just sitting right there. Now, Something to remember, it's a parable. It's not as meant to represent everything about something everywhere along the line. It's meant to teach one thing. Parables sing one song. Look for the one song every parable is trying to teach. Unless Jesus tells us it's a super detailed parable. He has a couple of those, but he always interprets them. He goes, and this represents this, and this represents this. But outside of that, when a parable is dropped, it's got one song. Look for the song. And don't try to make every single thing in a parable mean something else parallel. You'll make, make a mess of it. So Jesus gives this parable. The parable is found in Matthew 18. Matthew 18 um, is about Christians. 
It's, it's, a, it's an amazing little passage. Um, we, won't, we don't have time to read it all, but the passage starts with um, Jesus bringing a kid to his knee and says, what does it mean to come, Jesus? Like, come with the faith of a little child, like a little one like this. What is, the, actually, the question is, who is great in the kingdom of God? Because Jesus is a king. He has a kingdom. They don't quite get what that means yet. They're asking all kinds of questions about it. And everything he says about that kingdom blows their minds. And they're like, okay, what does greatness look like in your kingdom? And he goes, hand me a baby. Boom, he's holding the baby. And he goes, person who comes to me like this, simple, complete, childlike trust. And then he unfolds it over this chapter. Because those little babies, he says, those little spiritual infants, which represents us as his kids, they're precious. They're really, really loved. And those little people are either helped by everybody or hurt by everybody. They're either helped to see, admire, and cling to the Lord and grow in grace with him, or else they are drug away. They are taught to look away from Jesus. They are taught to find things that are other than Jesus are more satisfying. They are tempted in the text. And he goes, it's better to have a millstone hung around your neck than to drag one of my little ones down. So there's such value. Okay, I know we're not all Christians in the room. I know it. I don't know who you are, but, but I know it. And it's online. There's a few of you out there too. So I know we're not all Christians, but for one moment, let's just, let's just talk in this sense. The people sitting next to you that trust Jesus, they are deeply, deeply loved little children of God. I mean, he is, has white-hot passion for them, loves them deeply. And he says, you will have effect on them. Don't drag them away from me. Drag them to me. Be careful not to. And, and the way you, when you drag them away from him, it's called temptation. He says, don't do that. It's terrible. It's terrible for you to hurt my beloved ones sitting around you, my beloved children. So he says, everyone's going to be a part of like really receiving them and loving them, accepting them, or helping turn their hearts away. And we don't want to turn their hearts away. And we want to turn their hearts towards you. And then he says, everyone, all those little kids are going to face temptation. So Brothers and sisters, we're at church. We are brothers and sisters that sit under a great father. That's what we are. That's why we're Cross City Church. We're not this Sunday morning event. Obviously not a building, uh, although this is kind of a cool building. I like it. Um, maybe not as cool as uh, Via Vecchia, but all right, I like it a lot. Um, but we are God's family. So that's why we have missional communities. That's why we say to be a part of Cross City, find a missional community, get into it. That's the only way to be part of Cross City Church, right? Visit here on Sundays, get to know us, but then find, find a spot at the table, right? So we are Christians, we are the sons and daughters of God, and all the sons and daughters of God are tempted, according to Matthew 18. They all face it, and, um, and, and, and Jesus tells his little children, like, run away from temptation. I mean, get drastic with it if you need to, but little children flee from temptation. Then he moves on to talk about how sometimes his children will wander off from him in his heart of a shepherd that pursues them and leaves the 99 to find the one wandering child, because he doesn't just say, Fine then, you little thankless chump, wander off. Like his heart pours in love for us, and he sends the rest of the kids after him saying, come back to the Father. That stuff is not good you're running to. The Father is good. He's always treated you well. He'll never turn his back on you. Don't run away, run too. And that's what the middle of Matthew 18 is about, is what do you do? What do we do when God's little children run off from the Father, put their hands over their eyes, and flee the scene and run into the road? Then we get to the end of this book where we're at here now. And Peter goes, all right, okay, so I'm hearing this thing. He goes, no, but, but what, what do I do? So, so we see what, what we do when someone's kind of running away from you, but what do I do when they do something against me? 
How many times do I forgive them? And that's our text is today. Take a look down in Matthew 18, verse 21. I would encourage you to keep it open so you can look back and forth. Ma- Peter says this. I'm sorry I said Matthew, but I meant Peter. Peter came up and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? That's a, pretty, that's a, that's a good amount, right? We usually pull the plug after two. Uh, but seven, you know, classic Old Testament perfect number. Um, as many as seven times, and Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. And he gives them this parable. This parable ties into the gospel. So when we talk through gospel, right, when I talk through gospel, I talk through this thing of like, who is God? He made us, right? What does he care most about? His glory. If you missed our learning week this week, I would encourage you to go get that video and think about God's glory, maybe in some ways that you've never thought about before. So God makes everything. His glory is the best thing that there is. So he's going to preserve it, protect it, point everyone towards it. And he writes this in the scriptures. He makes you and me, man and and woman, right? He makes us to be God-centered about his glory. But we all run away and we're all self-centered. We're fallen, every last one of us, including your grandma. And then God graciously extends to us this offer to those dead people. Like, hey, though you ran away from me, you can have me again. Where I will be your king and your treasure, but I'll be the king. And if you want then, then we got to talk about the payment. How does that happen? Because you're spiritually dead and you can't do anything. So he sends Jesus, right? Jesus lives, dies, rises again, provides payment to forgive you of sin and give you righteousness and do everything for you that's needed to bring you into that relationship with God. And if you want that, if you want what's offered and you want the only payment that will work, then you respond to that in faith saying, okay, I put my faith in you. You don't say, well, let me clean up. He goes, don't clean up, you can't clean up. That's why I sent Jesus, right? So you put your faith in him. And the promise he'll save you, we get baptized to demonstrate that to ourselves and to the Lord and to the world around us that we are new in him. And he lets us live on a life of loving the Lord, loving his family, loving his world by bringing this gospel back to him, right? So this is kind of gospel as we work through it. Today, what I want to help you think through is fall. I've had a number of conversations over the last few weeks where I think um, we are hurt by not understanding the fallen spot. Um, for us as Christians, we have come to the Lord authentically, uh, childlike faith, children don't know a lot, right? Childlike faith would come to God and say, God, I'm in trouble, I'm a mess, I need your help, I trust Jesus, right? And he immediately brings us to him, right? We're loved and forgiven at that point. Then what happens is he blows up these categories over life, right? He was just unfolding all these amazing things about the payment of Christ and who he is and what he did and sanctification, justification, glorification. And he pours out all these things about the offer and what it means to glorify God and delight in him, be satisfied in him, for him to be the love of God where we love him with all our heart and all of our soul and all of our muchness and what it means to be submitted to Christ as our king and what it means to have the glory of God, what it means for us to be humans and not dolphins. All these kind of things, right? Just pours it all out, unpacks it all around us. And today, I hope to unpack the fall a little bit. Not in any way to make you feel bad. Not that I really would feel nervous about making you feel bad. But when God talks to his children about their sin, it's a, state, it's a discussion of amazement. Look where I actually found you, son, daughter. And this last couple of weeks, I've had a number of conversations where I feel like my brothers and sisters have been suffering from not knowing where God found them. So when they recount the story of God's love, it's a, it's a small divot that I was saved out of, and I had asked Jesus to save me out of that divot instead of me for some reason. 
And, but when you open up the teaching on the fall, and you see it ain't no small divot. It's the Grand Canyon. And, and it's not him saying, and look where I found you. It's he's like, look, and look where I got you from. Look at the love that I poured out there. It's an amazing thing. Matthew 18, in this passage, I think the use of this parable really, really helps me in this. I'm going to try to attempt to keep this kind of simple and very usable. In fact, at the end, I'm going to invite you to a little prayer process, okay? So I'm going to save some time for that, and I'm going to invite you to kind of pray with me through some of these themes. So this is a parable. Each parable has how many songs? One song, unless it's stated otherwise. We're looking for the song. The song is about forgiveness and perceived forgiveness. Look at verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven, the new economy of Jesus, and the way of doing things described by him, may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now remember, this is not a historical account. This is like an allegory, but it's called a parable, and it is a fictitious story meant to give one point. Okay, just remember that, okay? So the king is settling accounts, and he brought, uh, in verse 24, and when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That's a lot. I'll tell you about it in a second. 10,000 talents, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. It's like a New Testament form of a short sale, kind of attempting to recover assets that are due because what this guy owes is, is enormous. So the whole family is going into indentured servitude and paying off stuff that they'll never pay off. And so the servant wisely fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Wait till I tell you how much 10,000 talents is. I will pay you everything. Verse 27, and out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Then, verse 28, and when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. I know, you have no idea what that is. And seizing him, he began to choke him, frontal wall choke, saying, pay what you owe, pay what you owe. And his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him and said, have patience with me and I will pay you. Uh, almost the exact words he said for the king. And he refused, refused and put him in prison until he should pay the debt, worker's debt, worker's prison again. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, rightly so. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then the master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not then have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. And so all my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So the reason I mentioned this is a parable and not, um, not a direct one-for-one -one analogy is there's all kinds of details about the king, about the ownership, about prison, about payoff things about the removal of de uh, the, the reinstatement of debt and torture chambers and those kind of things. The song going to the top of this is, if you are forgiven, you will be forgiving. And if you are not forgiving as a person who holds the name of Jesus, chances are you are not forgiven. Because we as people who understand the forgiveness of Jesus, we actually embrace forgiveness, 
not just the relief of our personal debt. We actually like forgiveness now, and we like to give it. In our homes, when our siblings and our brothers and sisters, when they sin against us, and there's this, I mean, truly sin against us, and there really is this opportunity where there is justice owed because they took your stuff. In a marriage, when he says those rude words to you, and he really said it, and it was really unjust, and it was really unkind, there is a justice debt to be paid. When you are with your friends, and those people betray you and treat you poorly, and there really is an injustice that's been brought against you. When you're at work, and you are slandered um, for the sake of personal gain, when people just for the sake of their advancement, maybe just some social credit, maybe for the advancement of their, they actually take an opportunity to lie about you and say untrue things about you and poison you with the people that you work around. That is real sin. That is real debt. We are, we are surrounding our lives with debt opportunity of sin. People sin against us. And then we're not even talking about the way we sin against people. Just around us, people are sinning against us all the time and that sin is real and that debt is real and so there's a great opportunity to consider this okay so let's just go back to um uh, this the stakes just to kind of flesh out where this at the song in the parable is this if you really are a little child in jesus if you really are a person who's, who's crawled up on jesus lap and say i trust what you who you are what you said and what you've done for me i want to be yours please forgive me if you have done that you will be forgiving your brothers and sisters, particularly Christian brothers and sisters. It goes on beyond that in other texts, but right here it's particularly Christians. You will forgive them, and you'll keep forgiving them, and you'll keep forgiving them. And if you're not a forgiver, you have no right to really be resting at night that you are forgiven. So it's a really helpful soul diagnostic. It's a warning if you're living outside of it, and it's a very helpful soul diagnostic because your propensity to extend forgiveness to another person is a direct reflection of your view of forgiveness of yourself. So when you see that God has forgiven you, he says, shouldn't you have done like I have done to you? We then forgive. And when, so when we are hesitant and stingy with the forgiveness, because, man, it hurts sometimes so badly, we can't stand it. But when we withhold that, he says, who withholds forgiveness? Not this king. Not the one that supposedly forgave you. So that's the song of it. But I think in the middle of it is, is a ratio. And I think the ratio is incredibly helpful for us as believers when we think through the fall. So the title of our sermon today is Call Me Forgiven. Call Me Forgiven. Um, first piece is this. You must embrace forgiveness, not just the discharge of your debt. You must embrace forgiveness, not just the discharge of your debt. Let's talk about that ratio for a second. So in this uh, because we use dollars and bitcoins and some other stuff like that in our, in our, in our ratios of money here, when someone says, hey, you owe me six talents, you're like, uh, or how's, how's, how's your denarii account going? Here, here's the ratio. Servant number one owed uh, 10,000 talents. Servant number two owed him far less, 100 denarii. A denarii is one day's labor wage. Let's just for today say it's a $10 going rate with no taxation. Okay. $10 an hour, no taxation, with strong eight-day work, uh, strong eight-hour work days. So 100 denarii would be 100 days of labor 
let's say, uh, $10. A talent, a talent is 1,000 days of labor. 1,000 days of labor. So just doing a little math here, debt number one was 10,000 talents. Debt number two was 100 denarii. Um, if we want to, this, so, so talent number two, uh, uh, sorry, guy number one owes a debt 600,000 times the size of guy number two. 600,000. So let's just put this down into the, to our quantities of some dollars right here. So if you really had a um, <laughs> days of labor, it's 100 days of labor, a third of a year versus 60 million days of labor. Um, when it comes to some dollars here, um, if it's a $10 an hour job and you're only doing eight hours a day, um, guy number one owes 4800000 Guy number two owes 8000 If you want to bring it all the way down to, if you want to bring it all the way down to bottom numbers here, just divide it if you want to do old-fashioned math. Um, debt number one was $4.8 million and debt number two is $8. Like it's just extraordinarily gross separation, okay? And um, I, I think details are fun and the numbers are fun. But let's bring it back out to the heart. <laughs> God is showing the forgiveness of the good king over the people that come to him and ask forgiveness is a forgiveness of something we could never pay off. We fall on our knees and say, please forgive me. And we don't say, I'll pay it off for sure because you'll never pay that off. I'll never pay off my sin debt. You'll never pay off your sin debt. And so when we look across at our $8,000 debt that my brother commits against me, my sister commits against me, the call of God is to not see my debts horizontally, measure horizontally anymore. The call of God is for me now to live in this new vertical reality, to look first and always be aware of what I've been forgiven by the Father. And that dictates everything. He's saying if you get what I have forgiven you, it will liberate your heart to forgive and forgive abundantly. And if you don't forgive and forgive abundantly, it's because you're not looking up. You're still thinking, I forgave you 16 bucks. You're still thinking maybe it's 1000 maybe $10,000. Depends on how big of a sinner you think you are. So for me, my personal story is, and I'm sorry if you've heard the story too many times because you know me. Um, I grew up in a Christian home, and I read all these passages, did a wanna, Timothy Award back in the day. Um, <laughs> Uh, read all these passages, memorized some stuff, and um, I was aware that I was a sinner. I was aware that you were a sinner before I knew you uh, because I read the passages. And then, um, and, then, and then came like my adolescent years where I just started really wrestling with sin. You know, pornography, lust, all that kind of junk, right? And um, I, but I knew the Lord. And so as I would fall in sin, God would, would convict me and I would repent and run out. So I sat with... Um, Many, many, many people talking about their sin. And sometimes those of us that grew up in the church come to find out that we never knew the Lord in the first place. Honestly, we just didn't. And some of us find we actually did. And both of them will sin. So it's a little bit of a discernment case on if you think you were saved or back then. And probably what all comes down to is people trying to determine, should I get rebaptized? That's always where it comes down to. I was baptized as a kid. was a really Christian back then. So for me, as I th think it through, um, a couple of us were talking about this the other day. I think I did know the Lord back then, and I was falling into sin, and God was convicting me, and I was repenting and, and growing, and then falling and growing, but my falls were, were different every time, and the, and the growth curve kept growing. But the falls were so humiliating to my heart, and this is one of the signs of life. It really was humiliating to my heart without anybody knowing about it. Like, honestly, before the Lord, 
in Palmdale, California, when no one is around, I really was grieved before the Lord over what I had done to him more than what I'd done to other people. And I was doing things to other people. That was big. But what I was doing to him was bigger. That was happening a little bit in my early teen mind back then. And it's one of the signs I think that I was really alive with him. But what happened was, there was a whole newfound humility in my heart. Boom. I, now, now that word, falling short of the glory of God, sinner, actually has some weight on it. I'm like, oh, oh. And, and because I, I, I was dealing with the Lord, it really brought my heart down to a newer level of humility on average standing, shall we say. I'm not saying I was the most humble person in the world, but it really broke the ice of self-righteousness and dropped me down. And I really felt like, man, I, I can't throw rocks at anybody from this glass house, right? And so I really was humbled quite a bit. But then, even as I was sharing with certain people about this, I, I sensed that there was something even deeper wrong. And then uh, fast forward years later, I guess I'm 18 or 19, I'm going to the master's college in California, and I'm realizing that I don't love God's word. It's kind of, even though I memorize much, but I just don't like it. And I realized that that's not a good thing. That's not a good sign of life. And so I started asking him and realizing, oh, ha, but no one's born liking God's word with be reborn to like God's word and a new fresh work of the spirit to like God's word. It's like it's not a diet we naturally go after. So he's telling us about that. So it's not a shocker. So I can go before the Father. And he says he's a mock us when we come and ask for wisdom. If that's not wisdom, there's nothing wisdom. So I come before the Father as an 18-year-old guy and say, God, I want to have a heart that loves your word. Give me a heart that loves your word. And, um, and by his grace, convicted me of like, all right, well, let's pick a pattern and go for it until your heart does like my word. And so I started going down the cafeteria on mornings and just reading through the New Testament for kind of the first time on my in, with my own independent mind and probably my full adult version of gray matter or as adultish as it's ever got. And, um, and I started reading through there and I'm hitting these passages and there's a couple we'll, we'll finish out the sermon today on. But this is one of them, and I read it, and I mean, all of a sudden, like, I felt like, I felt like the Lord clicked on the flashlight in the room. <sighs> like, oh, I thought I was a sinner. I was a bad sinner because I was lustful and deceitful and because I was lazy and all these kind of things, and that was true. But when I found out really about my roots and why I was that way, I mean, the whole thing opened up. The whole thing opened up, and it began like a year-long process of the Lord very graciously in a timely way, piece by piece, just opening up rooms in my heart that I never knew I had. Uh, and particularly, it was the year of the unfolding of Scott Burns' pride. And it, the, last, the last room of pride that eventually opened up was how I was always posturing against people and holding people off and not letting people in, and not letting people disciple me and wanting to always be the, the expert out of the box and not their learner. And I mean, it was just, it was just a wonderful, wonderful year life-giving, transforming year, not fun moments, fantastic year because of that. So I read these passages, and what happened was I saw the $4.8 billion. Now, I'm not saying I saw it perfectly. I'm not saying I remember everything I saw because I have to keep my nose in God's word to keep there and fresh and have these things washed over me so I don't get cold and callous to it. But I finally saw the bottom. And I think that's when God really liberated my heart for a couple things. Number one, real humility of people. So, man, I don't know what you're struggling with. 
I don't know what you've done to another person, but I can't look down my nose at you because I know who I am. I found myself in the text. I found you in the text before I met you too. And we already know what it is. The expressions of it look different, but I can't look down my nose at you. And if you've found yourself in the text, you can't look down your nose at me or at anybody else. We are sinners by nature, but then a greater grace. That's where we're back in Romans, right? He goes, man, look at this depth, but look at this life that exceeds the depth. The grace of Jesus doesn't just bring us back up on par. No, 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 no. Boom, greater grace into greater blessings and acceptance and transformation of God. So, amazing ratio of debt to uh, debt levels there. And as you look at the one, um, it changes your view. As you look to your vertical and you become very convinced of it and amazed by it, it will absolutely change your, what you will see when you look laterally at the people around you. Even the horrible things they do to you. Because you will, another person will not do to you something worse than you have done to God. And there's a handful of you in this room right now that will not believe that statement. You will never have someone do worse to you than what you have done and will do to God. Um, and I don't say that lightly to belittle some horrific things that have been done to you. And for some of you, some horrific things that you've done to another person. What I'm saying is, we don't know how much bigger that stuff is vertically. We don't get it. It doesn't belittle the horrific things done to us and the horrific things that we have done. But we just don't get the vertical. We don't know how great God is. I mean, what, what an amazing, an amazing, epic tragedy it is what we've done to the living God. And then even after we know him, how we'll keep sticking him in the back. I mean, people in this room that have known Jesus for 40 years, we will tell you we are the biggest idiots in the world. Like, how could we more and more see the goodness of God poured out on us all the time, this grace and this kindness, and then we're dumb again with the, with the more clear vision of the goodness of God than we've ever had before, and we teach on it, and we write on it, and we talk to our kids about it, and whatever, and then we go off and we forget it again and distrust Jesus. Jesus is astounding in his deep forgiveness of us. And when we finally see how much that is, it starts to really, really make sense of how David says in Psalm 51, after he slept with Bathsheba, brought the about the death of his son, um, had one of his mighty men assassinated and took his wife and had a kid with her, all that, all that horrible, horrible lateral stuff, he, with wisdom, inspired by the Spirit of God, says, against you and you alone have I sinned. He's not denying that he didn't sin against Uriah and Bathsheba and against his son and against the nation of Israel. But what he's saying is that my sin is first and foremost vertical, not lateral. Even as the sinner, not the person sinned against. My sin is first vertical, and the immensity of that is so great that it can be said that against you and you alone have I sinned. Did he sin against Bathsheba? You know it. Did he sin against Uriah? Heartbreakingly, phenomenally. Let's think about this. Just, I've always been impacted by Uriah. Can you, be a, can you imagine Uriah? He was one of David's mighty men. He was married to Bathsheba. He was fighting for David. And David slept with his wife. And then David tried to cover it up by bringing Uriah in. And Uriah just seems to be a pretty amazing guy. He, he won't even take any of the pleasures of, of in-town stuff while his boys are out fighting. And so then David's fine. David sends him out. And then David has this treacherous, brutal guido guy um put uriah forward and uriah gets nailed with a bunch of arrows can you imagine being on your back struggling for air and 
Joab coming over, you go, hey, just so you know. David actually took your wife. She's pregnant with your child. Uh, that child is going to grow up as his kid. Um, and David, that guy who's having you murdered and just stole you, that's a little wife from you and just had you murdered, um, he's going to be called a man after God's own heart. He's going to write the Psalms. People are going to be singing his Psalms all day long. People are going to know about King David, and they're not going to so much know about Josiah. I mean, can you imagine the levels of injustice that have been brought against him? And yet David, fully repentant now, truly says, against you and you alone have I sinned. Because the gravity of the vertical is infinitely bigger than the lateral. And it doesn't belittle the lateral. But we will not understand the lateral. We won't know how to deal with it. We won't know how to ask forgiveness. We don't want to know how to give forgiveness unless we deal first with the vertical. It's this new perspective to look up and see the way, the truth, the light, because it is not natural to us. It's something new he teaches us. So there's these three stages, I would say, of understanding your sin. Uh, number one is when you first come to Jesus. and you, you, you can't even describe what's wrong. You're like, God, I'm off. I'm broken. My life's a wreck. I'm in danger. I need your rescue. I need your help. Level two is when you start actually seeing more clearly, like, oh, man, my life is actually filled with sin. And it's humbling. Level three is when you read it and you find yourself in the text. These big essential things are told about you. And they're not tauntings of God saying, look at you. Look at you, boy. You're just a, an enemy, an alien to me. And girl, I've, you're just worthless. These aren't the ways that God's talking about it. These are all statements of, and look, my love for you. Look at, look at where you are. Look at how I went after you there in these positions and I brought you up and, and I've forgiven you and, and brought you into my love and I won't let you go. So there's definite value in remembering and telling your former predicament to yourself and to your kids and to your friends. And here's some just reasons why. Number one, it makes us humble with each other. When we believe that we are sinners saved by grace, I mean epic sinners, we are humble people with one another. We don't make fun of each other's sin at all. And we don't look it down each other's nose at each other. Number two, it keeps Jesus as the hero and us as the blessed. Jesus hero, blessed, not heroes. So this is a great challenge for us parents. Um, parents, if you're loving your kids and spending time with them, there's going to be this habit of starting to look over to you and see hero. But our jobs as parents is to go, no, no, I'm not hero. I'm blessed. He's hero. Let me, t- let me tell you about how I was lost and now I'm found. Let me unfold these things to you over the days of your life, showing you the wonders of God who came to me as one who's now blessed. Third, it helps us better grapple with the love of God and that he loved us there. So you can't deal, can't appreciate the love of God until you see the size of the love of God that burrowed to the bottom to bring you out. If you think that your sin was just a little divot, that you're a pretty nice person, pretty clean, uh, your concept of the love of God is going to be weak. It's going to be anemic because you haven't seen him flex. So the, the view of the fall, open it up to us, lets us see the depths of his love. And finally, it refreshes our joy. Three things consider as we go through here. Number one, you must embrace forgiveness, not just the discharge of your debt. That's why if you think back to the Lord's Prayer, remember, it starts off with our Father, right? And then she gets along here. And then he says, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who sin against us. So, there's no such thing as liking the release of my sin debt, but not liking the concept of forgiveness. You can't just go in there, okay, I, I see this forgiveness thing, and I'm going to come and take my piece of forgiveness, but I'm largely going to loathe the forgiveness process, except for when it applies directly to me. 
That's not biblical forgiveness. That's not embracing the heart of Jesus. Forgiveness comes in order that we might embrace the heart of Jesus, to embrace everything in him the way he treats us. Just consider this. This is uh, Luke 7, 47. Um, he says, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. I could pick any of you in the room I want to say. I will, Kevin. Um, <laughs> Kevin is not forgiven technically more than me. And I am not forgiven technically more than Kevin. But there's perception. Right? There's perception. Like when you see, oh man, the amazing thing, guys, forgive you. You are forgiven much. When you're like, oh, it's a pretty good person, pretty good, pretty good girl. Not that I just have a couple problems. I swore three times with my mom growing up and a couple things like this. Then, then you're forgiven little. And you know what's going to happen? You're going to love little. So this idea of forgiveness actually ties right into the first commandment. How do you love God? How do you love his family? How do you love your world? Remember your forgiveness. Having a problem loving? First of all, go, remember, go back and remember the fall. Remember where he got you from. First step, remember where he got you from because if you've forgiven little, you'll love little. Don't forget that. The, rev, the story of the rescue never gets old. Have you ever been rescued by somebody? Like near death, financially rescued? Those aren't embarrassing stories to tell when you're really rescued because there's this amazing rescuer your mom your dad your friend whatever there's an amazing rescuer who comes in your world and that's a beautiful thing and their beauty is bigger than our embarrassment we love the rescue we love the rescue we talk about it number two you can forgive others when amazed at god's forgiveness of you you can forgive others when you are amazed at god's forgiveness of you what did you actually do against God? For me, when I realized the deeper things beyond the fact that I just was lazy and lustful and deceitful, those kind of things, but understand the deeper things, it all of a sudden opened up a truly, well, number one, this is, this is where you, you take it, you, God gives you advantages of things you don't understand yet. When I first read these passages that we'll pray through in a second about where I was in sin and where you were in sin, where we're all in sin, I intuitively, though I couldn't describe it, knew it. He was talking in past tense. I knew that those things were true of me, but I knew I was okay now. They weren't the current states of me. And so it wasn't until much later when all of a sudden that unfolded, and I see how, I'm like, oh, that really was me, but not now because of this and this and this. But I didn't understand that at first, but in the beginning, I simply knew basically this was true of me, but it's not true of me anymore. And so I was coming to the topic and the topic of gratitude uh, and the concept of gratitude and peace, not in shame, going, oh my gosh, I am so terrible. When I read the terrors of the passage, it brought me joy because I knew that that's what he actually brought me out of. So these things go way beyond mere actions. The third uh, one to share with us is this. There's a difference between still being hurt. Um, there's a difference between still being hurt, not still, You've never been here before. Okay. Um, there's a difference between being still hurt and forgiving. There's a difference. So when you are extending forgiveness, you choose to discharge a debt owed to you. Somebody stole money from you. Quite often, more often than what is, someone has, a, has, a, has done a, an infraction against you. They've really hurt you. Forgiveness is when you look to Jesus and you say, you, I forgive you of that debt. You no longer owe me justice. 
because you're actually giving the justice to Jesus, like letting him have it, letting him take care of it. You discharge it, but that doesn't mean you're going to feel good. And you're not unforgiving until you feel good. So when people do terrible things against you, you're not an unforgiving person until you feel good about it. When people do terrible things against you, you come to, by the grace of Jesus, the call to forgive. And that is a choice, an obedience choice out of which the heart and say, God, it's hard for me. I can barely see past it. But you say, in this moment, you say my sin's bigger, but I don't get it. But I have to trust you. And I discharge the debt. The debt is canceled. They don't owe it to me. I'm not going to leverage my attitude and my face and my social media against them. It's forgiven. And then God will allow the hurt to be healed as time goes along through various means of his grace. Don't confuse lasting hurt with non-forgiveness. So let's do this. I I I want to pray through this together. So like we prayed before the sermon, I want to pray now with you. And um, I'm going to say some things and read some things, and then I'm just going to put it in your hands for you to think and pray about 10 to 15 seconds after each one of these things. Would you guys please bow your heads? So number one, wait, wait no bow, no bow. I'll back up. If you don't know Jesus, here's my thing, brother, my friends. You can know Jesus by saying, God, I don't want to be that anymore. I want to be yours. I, wor- I trust in the work of Jesus. Do not try to clean yourself up. You do that right now in prayer. You are his son and daughter, Okay. The what I'm talking about here is for the sons and daughters of God. If you're outside of that, this doesn't apply to you, feel free to listen and experience God blessing his children. Would you guys bow your heads? So first thing, we're thinking about forgiveness. Let's establish the, father's, the Father and his love for you. This text says this, and I want you to consider it after I say it. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we have said that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So, Father, we come to you now and admit that we are by nature sinners, and sinners saved by grace because we've confessed that by your power to you, and that we are now resting in your love and favor. Your love is secure, Father. Your love for us is secure. It still amazes my mind that you tell us to talk about your love, your fatherly love for us before we talk about our sins. But we submit to that. We submit to that gospel security. Number two, brothers and sisters, confess sins from today, this week, any other unconfessed sins that you as his child need to admit and betray them to the Father. Ask him to search your heart. child of God, with those very real things in front of you, the Father that loves you says in Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. He says those sins have been removed from you. Third spot, 
let's remember his forgiveness of our heaviest sins that we can remember up in our life. That the Father is already so graciously forgiven. Not to bring him up and feel guilty about him. These are sins you've dealt with. They are forgiven. Let's bring these things up just for a moment. Spirit, lead us to remember some of these great occasions of your grace where you've forgiven us of these very strong, looming sins in our lives. How bad did it get? Brothers and sisters, even though it got that bad, he says this in Hebrews 8, I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. He says he remembers your sins no more. Talk to him about that. And finally, let's go to the deepest level, the essence of who we are. Colossians 1.21 says this, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Father, I truly was an active enemy of yours, fighting against your glory. True or false? Talk to me about it. Father, I truly was an active enemy of yours, fighting against your glory. Consider this before him. Father, I was truly an alien from you and your people and your kingdom. I had no, I had no right to you. But then listen to what he did and thank him for this. The next verse. He has now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Talk to him about that. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Consider this, Ephesians 2.4. Father, I was following the course of this world. I truly followed Satan. Consider these words. Ephesians 2, 1, 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That was, that was me. That was us. Talk to him about it. Then listen to what he did and thank him for this same passage. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Father, a greater grace. I've released this sermon to you to brothers and sisters i believe father that we can't experience your love deeply until we see the depths of our sin from which you saved us and we of which we rarely knew when you actually did save us but when we see that we were fighting against your glory when we see that we were aliens from you 
when we see that we were enemies of yours, when we see that we were following Satan, those are your words, elsewhere children of wrath, dead, we were darkness. We were that, really were that. There's no righteousness in us. But right there is where your love came. That is who you saved in me. That is the story of an amazing, deep-reaching grace. And if that's true, Father, it liberates us to forgive anybody. Forgives, it just liberates us, Lord, when we see the depths of your love to rescue us. So, Father, I pray that you would help my brothers and sisters be seeing the depths of what you've rescued us from, to see what really ails our friends around us, what's really wrong with them, what's really wrong with our grandpa, what's really wrong with the nicest people we've ever seen, the most moral people. They are fighting against your glory. They are at war with you. They are following Satan, and they need freed from that. And the only thing that frees us from that is you and your grace. So, Father, please, shape our hearts and our minds. Move us to gratitude and thankfulness as we celebrate communion back there in these circles and our great Savior, Jesus Christ. We love you. Please let us be amazed by grace. In Christ's name we pray.